there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Neal the rebound. Kevin Alley brings it up. Throws it across. Miller for three. Oh, he backed it in. He backed it in. And the game is tied. We're going to overtime. Over the rebound for his ninth. 18 points, nine rebounds, six assists. Oh, 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 oh the chicken. Double time. Miles Turner. Yeah. Welcome to the NBA, my friend. Turner sets the screen. Oh, 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 no. oh, oh no. Right Don't let him throw it down like that. Victor on the deep throw. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Born Ready to Pod podcast. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Born Ready to Pod podcast. My name is Chris Cook, and sitting next to me, as always, Eric Hawk and Jake Light. Also joining us today on the podcast, a very special guest phoning into the show right now, 11-year NBA veteran, former center for your Indiana Pacers, a contestant in the 32nd season of the TV show Survivor, and also the first-ever NBA champion, on this podcast, Scott Pollard. Scott, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. That was a heck of an introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> we, we like to build our guys up a little bit as you know the interview uh, begins. So, um, Looking back at your NBA career, you played for five different NBA teams in 11 seasons. Um, one of the most inter- interesting things to me, uh, just looking at your career, was the fact that you made the playoffs 10 out of your 11 NBA seasons. So... Uh, do you think uh, the Scott Pollard presence on those teams brought good luck, or do you think you just played on some really good NBA teams? Uh, well, I, I can actually do you one better. All four years of college, I made the Sweet 16, and my junior and senior year of high school, I played in the postseason. So uh, I don't want to just flat out say it's the Scott Pollard magic, <laughs> but that's a lot of coincidences. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it, it, I'm, I'm being facetious. Uh, my rookie year in Detroit, we actually had a chance to make the, the the playoffs. We made a little bit of a push at the end there, and then actually we just got uh, we we didn't make enough of a push, obviously, but uh, we got eliminated mathematically. We we had done enough, but then another team was got eliminated from the playoff contention with about three or four games left in the season. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel incredibly lucky to be a part of uh, so many uh, winning teams. Uh, again, dating back from high school all the way through the rest of my career. Um, and uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking that, that it's not Scott Pollard magic. I just feel like I, uh, I was very lucky to be in the right place in a lot, uh, in a lot of the right time. But um, the one thing I do is when I, when I speak to people and, and, and encourage boys, you know, uh, I may not have been the greatest player ever, uh, but I do know how to win. And I, I know how to make my teammates better, and I know how to, to encourage my teammates and to be the best they can be. And I knew how to make the best out of myself and accept my role. And I think in today's NBA, uh, changing subjects a little bit, uh, I think that's uh, a big problem for a lot of players coming up now is everybody uh, thinks, okay, I'm in the NBA now. I need to shoot threes. I need to uh, 
uh, block shots or I need to, uh, you know, guard everybody. I need to play every position. And I think players lose themselves in trying to do everything, and they forget that there are little niche roles uh, that you can carve out for yourself uh, and be a better teammate as opposed to being somebody that's trying to do everything. Um, but that, that I don't want to keep going down that rabbit hole because I could do that forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so kind of talking about your career there, especially in the playoffs, one of the memories for me, I mean, I've always grew up a Pacers fan, but I watched you a lot on those playoff runs with the Sacramento Kings. I was a young kid uh, when you guys were making those runs. So uh, you played all those series against the Lakers. So I, I think that the most memorable th- memorable thing from watching you guys in those was the atmosphere in Arco Arena there in Sacramento. So how electric was it playing there in Sacramento in those playoff games? It, it was electric playing there in, in regular season games and preseason games. I mean, that, that place was special. Uh, it's been replaced by the Golden One Center, which is a beautiful arena. I haven't seen an actual Kings game there, but I've been to the arena a few times. Uh, and it's a beautiful place. It's technologically uh, one of the most, most advanced, if not the most advanced. But uh, back in the Stone Ages when I played for the Kings, uh, the, the old barn, as they called it, uh, colloquially and, and locally, uh, Arco Arena was not uh, a phenomenal fan experience. It was not state-of-the-art. Um, it, it was old, and it was decrepit, and it, and it wasn't even that old. It just wasn't that great to begin with, uh, with, with apologies to whoever built it. Uh, but the, the locker rooms weren't that great. Even the home locker rooms weren't that great. But it was just in a crazy atmosphere because the fans in Sacramento were like no other fans in the NBA. And that's why when it, when it came time for the previous ownership group, the Maloofs, who I love, I love those guys, don't get me wrong, but when they were considering moving them to Vegas or Seattle, the NBA basically shut them down. They said, no, we're not going to lose this fan base. It's all about the fans. Uh, I, I never played in front of a home court uh, crowd, and, and you mentioned five different teams that was anywhere near as close as Sacramento. And I'm not knocking NBA fans. I'm not knocking Indiana fans or any of those teams I've played for. I'm just saying that that city reveres the Kings as if they were Kings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've answered this question a thousand times, but we would be remiss if we didn't ask you anyway. So here's a two-part question for you. What were those playoff battles like matching up against Shaq? And if a clone of Shaq were to enter the NBA today, what would your best advice be to stopping him? Maybe you could even write a book about it. <laughs> give, give us credit, though, while the book's being written. <laughs> well, the first, the answer to the first one, first part of that question is, uh, uh, well, wait, what, what was the first part of the question? Because I had the second part going on. What were the playoffs like uh, battling oh, up yeah. against Shaq, basically? The, the first part of that question, yeah. The, uh, the, I, I played against Shaq uh, in his prime as much as anybody else. Yeah. Uh, we, we played against each other in the preseason twice, uh, typically at their place or at our place, and always in Las Vegas for a preseason game. We always played them every year twice, and usually it was either a home for them or a home for us and in Vegas uh, or, or whatever. And then four times during the regular season, and then typically – six or seven games in the playoffs, depending on how good we were or how good they were. So uh, I got very familiar with playing against Shaq, and it, and it was one of those things. And it was funny, actually, today on, on one of the social medias, somebody was putting out there that, like, 
you know, Shaq was so good, he made a lot of guys' careers because people were tooling up to try to figure out how they could stop him. And I was one of those guys. And I, I'm not ashamed to admit that that probably made my career longer was because I was one of those guys that made a little bit of a niche for himself. Uh, I even got a nickname called the Shaq Stopper. Yeah. I never stopped him. I never even slowed him down very much. I mean, he was ridiculous. He was an amazing player. Uh, but, um, you know, the, to, to give advice to a current player that, that if Shaq were, were to be in the NBA right now, I would say you, you do your best against the greatest talent uh, that the league has ever seen. I, I don't know what it's like to guard Will Chamberlain, but I knew, do know what it's like to guard my childhood, Hero Patrick Ewing. Uh, I guarded Hakeem Olajuwon. I guarded Charles Barkley. I guarded David Robinson. I guarded Tim Duncan his whole career, my whole career, not his whole career because he lasted longer than I did. <laughs> um, I guarded Dirk Kavitsky. I guarded uh, so many players. I can't even name them all. I don't want to leave anybody out. I probably did. But, uh, you know, I played against the tallest players that ever played in the game. I played against Manute Bull. I played against Sean Bradley. I played against Dikembe Mutombo. I played with Dikembe for a month in, in Atlanta. I never even actually played a game, but I was on the team with him for a month. So uh, I got to be around and play against some of the greatest big men that have ever played in the game. And uh, my advice to a, to a young player right now, or any player right now, if there were a shack, would be to just don't back down because there's nothing they can do to hurt you. Uh, unless you put your face on their elbow, which Shaq did to me a couple times, or I put my face on his elbow. It was my fault. They called a foul on me, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it, the, the thing about it is, is once you get to the NBA, you definitely have talent. What the difference is between players that last a while in the NBA and players that don't last a while in the NBA is players accept, if they're not a superstar, which most of us are, a role. And that's, the, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a difficult thing. So, if you figure out, hey, man, I can guard this guy and make a career of it, even if it means I'm a bench warmer, I come in to try to slow this player down, to figure out what I can do to frustrate him and get him thinking about me or the people in the crowd or whatever it is besides scoring and being the best he can be, well, I've done my job. And so many players, again, nowadays don't understand that, and they want to just shoot threes or dribble up the court, even if they're seven free. Uh, so I don't know that there will be a shack for a while uh, in the in the sense that we're talking about. But at some point, size will return to the game, uh, back to the basket size, because there will be some more big boys that come down the road and, and people have to tool up to try to stop that player that is so dominant inside with his back to the basket that nobody can stop him. So then all of a sudden it, the game will switch. And NBA uh, basketball, not NBA, but all basketball is jazz music. It's always changing depending on who the talent is, uh, whether it's guards or big men. And it fluctuates and it changes. Uh, and that's what one of the wonderful things about basketball. Is. It's not better now than it's ever been. It's not worse now than it's ever been. It's just different than it's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we did a sit down with David Harrison uh, a couple weeks ago and he, he told us a story when you guys were both on the Pacers. He had to go in and he had to guard Shaq and um, you were, you kind of came out of the game, and he was just kind of filling in for a few seconds. And you, you, when you came off the floor, you were like, "Whatever you do, just do not piss him off. Like, don't piss Shaq off." And inevitably, David Harrison, of course, pisses Shaq off. You come in the game, and then he's pissed and just trying to dunk over everybody and just push people around. So, is I mean, was that part of it? Like, hey, I'm going to play defense, but at the same time, I don't want to piss him off too much to where he's like going too far over the edge to make me look bad. 
You know, uh, I never actually guarded Michael Jordan one-on-one, but I was on the court against him uh, on a few occasions towards the end of his career. Guys like that, you don't make them angry. You don't give them a reason to be their best. You want to lull them to sleep. As I was saying, what I did was I talked crazy to people. I looked crazy at people. I poked people. I prodded people, but not in order to make them upset, just to make them think about me, or I would point out people in the crowd, look at that guy, or look at that girl, or whatever, because the best thing you can do to a superstar like Shaquille O'Neal is get them thinking about something else other than being their best. And that was my advice to David, because David is, is an instigator. Uh, David's very intelligent. And, and as a rookie, that, that's the best advice I could give him was, hey, man, don't be you. Just get it, get, go out there and don't make him mad, because as, especially as a rookie versus Shaq, any rookie versus any superstar, if you go out there and try to show them up, then they're going to raise their game. And there's 82 games in the regular season, as we all know, and the playoffs. Superstars don't need to be their best every single night. So why give them a reason to be their best on your night? They can be their best when they're on national TV in primetime. When they're playing against this, this game in, in December against a rookie, why give them an excuse to raise their game up a level just to piss you off or to prove you this lowly rookie wrong? You already know he's better than you, so why make him raise his game? So that was that was all of that long-winded response I just said. That's what I was trying to get across to David in a short amount of time. Don't piss him off, because that's all you're going to do is make him be his best in December against the Indiana Pacers when he, he doesn't need to be his best right now. So let's just try to get through this game without making Shaq angry and making Shaq be the best he can be, because... That's what he's going to do because he has that capability any time of the night. Don't give him the motivation. Don't give him the inspiration. Just get out there, grind it, grind it. Let him, let him fall asleep, lull him to sleep. Distract him with a poke in the ribs. Not an angry poke, just, hey, why did you poke me in the ribs? I was just tickling you, big boy. I would say stuff like that. Like, I would say stuff like that just because he's thinking about me tickling him in the ribs and not dunking on my face. And, and that's, that was part of what I did. That player, nobody ever took a swing at me because people knew I was a little weird. What if I, what, what if they take a swing at me and what if I happen to be a serial killer? They didn't know because they, they saw my hair, my facial hair, my beard and ponytails and mohawk and all that. And I'm bouncing around looking at him all crazy. I, I'm not like that. I'm a married father of four and I was a married father during my entire NBA career. So I've never been a crazy guy, but I played one on TV. And that's why I think I got some of the respect and some of those superstars I got to guard was because I played a role on television and some of them believed it. Some of them believed I might be a little unstable. You didn't see anybody taking a swing at me in my entire NBA career. And I think it was because, A, maybe it was a little bit of respect. I don't know. But it also might have been just because they didn't know what I would do if, I, if, if they really did hit the scales of, the, of what they thought was a crazy man. I love it. Yeah, I, I definitely, the number one thing if I was on the same court as Shaq is do not piss Shaq off. In fact, don't even don't even uh, acknowledge that I'm there, Shaq. But um, you played three seasons with the Pacers. Uh, you definitely had some memorable moments while you were there. So um, you played on the 61-win Eastern Conference Finals team along with the following season when the brawl occurred. So 
Um, when you think about your playing career in Indiana, what are some of the first things that come to your mind? Uh, re- regret that I wasn't healthier, uh, and, and there was nothing I could do about it. I, I busted my butt, uh, but but the, the truth is I, I fractured my sacrum the previous year in Sacramento, and I sat out four months of that season. I came back, uh, and I thought I was healthy, and I played the end of that season, not very much, about a month of the end of that season, maybe a month and a half, and then the playoffs. But during that time, I happened to be out here in Indiana, and I, I had like 17 points and 16 rebounds or something like that against the Pacers. And the Pacers were like, whoa, uh, Brad Miller's contract is expiring, and we're going to have to pay him a lot of money. And look at this guy. He just destroyed Brad Miller and Jermaine O'Neal and Jeff Foster. Uh, and it was one of the better games of my career, unfortunately for me, because I didn't really want to come to Indiana. I didn't know I was getting traded to Indiana. Uh, and I got traded here against my will, uh, volition, knowledge, uh, anything. Uh, I, I watched it on TV. It was during the draft, but I didn't have any forewarning. Uh, now, having said that, obviously I still live here. It's not like I'm I'm still angry, uh, but that's just the, the the fact of the matter. Is I didn't have to be traded here. I didn't want to be traded here, uh, but I live here now. Um, but it, it's the 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 feelings I have about being an Indiana Pacer were that it was just the wrong time of my career to be here. I used those three years to try to heal, uh, and and but still try to get minutes uh, in order to extend my career further. And even though the Pacers, I didn't really fit. I didn't fit with Rick Carlisle more than anybody. I fit with my teammates. Jamal and I had great practices together. Jamal Tinsley and I mm-hmm. practiced very very well together. Um, Anthony Johnson, his backup. Yeah, uh, and I practiced very well together. But the thing about practice is, we didn't have to run plays. When we were just scrimmaging, uh, we would just go out there and freestyle. And everybody, like, we had great practices. But then when it came to game time and we're running plays, I didn't fit into Rick Carlisle's system. So I didn't get a lot of minutes because I don't do plays. I'm a read and react player. I always was. Mm-hmm. It's more of a West Coast uh, mentality. It's not, hey, let's walk it up the court. Let's call a play. Everybody get your sets. I never learned how to play basketball that way. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't fit into Rick Carlisle's system, and Rick Carlisle's a hell of a coach. He's a great guy. I really I, I fell in love with how, who he is as a person after playing for him because I got to know more about him. I got to meet him and be around him more, and I really respect Rick Carlisle as a coach. And I, I always did, but I really like Rick Carlisle as a person uh, more than I liked him as a coach. But it, just, it wasn't the right fit for me mm-hmm. uh, as a player to be in his system. Uh, and, and it was that way for some other players as well. But I don't, I'm not going to call any names. But we, we had some good, some good teams. Uh, but I just, long story short, memories of the Indiana Pacers, I wish I had been better and I would have been better had I been healthier. But it also was a tough fit given my playing style and Rick Carlisle's coaching style. Uh, so those things didn't really mesh very well. And when my contract was up, Larry Bird didn't want me anymore. Uh, but a lot of other teams did. And I ended up signing with the Cleveland Cavaliers and going to the finals with them the next year. Yeah, and that was a, I mean, very historic playoff run there. I think LeBron, LeBron went crazy there and uh, helped lead the Cavs there to that finals. 
Um, but as we mentioned earlier, you are an NBA champion. Uh, and I believe I saw that you nearly almost retired prior to playing that season with the Boston Celtics. So take us through how special of a team that was and how great of a moment it is to win an NBA championship. Something that, you know, most nearly the whole population will never get to experience. Uh, well, really quickly, yes, uh, that's true. I, I was going to retire after my 10th season, uh, which was with the Cleveland Cavaliers. We got to the finals. Uh, and at that point, I played the Western Conference Finals, the Eastern Conference Finals twice, uh, and the NBA Finals once. Uh, and I just thought, you know what? I've, I've been on all these winning teams, but it's never going to happen. Ten years is my goal in the NBA. Uh, I, I reached my goal, my, my challenge to myself. Uh, but uh, I, I got talked into to playing another year. And, and um, being on that team uh, from minute one, uh, by the way, I, I spent a ton of money and lived downtown. I was the only player that lived downtown on that whole roster. Everybody else lived out by the practice facility, which is about 20 miles outside of town. Uh, but I was like, if I'm going to live in Boston, I'm going to live in Boston. Uh, and I had a new baby, and there's a, there's a law there in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. It's not a state, it's a Commonwealth. And uh, you couldn't even rent a place uh, that's older than 1978 in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts if you have a kid under two years old because of lead paint. So I had an infant, and I couldn't rent any place. Well, guess where everything is? Guess how old everything is in the suburbs of Boston? Uh, like 200 years old. It's not even 1978. It's like 200 years old. So uh, there was no chance I was, I was going to be able to rent anywhere down, out, outside the city. Uh, so I ended up renting a really, really nice condo, living downtown. Boston is by far my favorite place I ever lived in the NBA of all the places I lived. Uh, but I lived like a king downtown Boston. Uh, I spent a ton of money on rent. I lived in a three-bedroom, beautiful condo overlooking Boston uh, Logan Airport. And so that was part of why I enjoyed Boston so much. But Doc Rivers was a great coach for that team at that time. I don't think Doc Rivers is an amazing coach. I just think he was the right coach for that team at that time. Uh, and I don't even think he was the right coach for that team later. I think it just happened to work that year. Um, but uh, Paul Pierce and I were college teammates. Uh, so he was the one familiar face I, I knew really well on that team. Um, Brian Scalabrini and I had played against each other over, over our careers. We were similar age guys. Uh, Kevin Garnett and I had had many battles over the years. He's one of those guys that I hated playing against uh, and loved playing with. And it's because he was such a competitor. I felt the same way about Reggie Miller. I hated Reggie Miller until I was teammates with him. And I was like, oh, that's why I hated him, because the guy is a competitor. And so... Uh, being on that Boston team, great memories. My, the, the worst part about it for me was I got there in September. Uh, we, were, we were practicing, uh, getting ready for our European tour, and I rolled my ankle, and it never really recovered. I played hurt the, uh, throughout the uh, – I didn't even play in the preseason. We went over to Rome. We, were, we went on to London, but I got sent home. I didn't go to London uh, because my ankle, and they MRI'd it. And they said, look, you're getting surgery. It's either now – and you're going to miss four months because we've got to rebuild your ankle, uh, or you can try to make it through the season, but you're going to get surgery on that ankle. Well, of course, I'm not going to take four months off if I can make it through. I just made taken four months off from my spine uh, three seasons earlier, four seasons earlier uh, in Sacramento. And so I, I just gambled, and I, I was able to play until February of that year uh, when my ankle finally gave out, guarding Shaq in Phoenix. 
Uh, I turned to run, and my left ankle finally gave out. I thought I'd pop my Achilles tendon, but it turned out it was the final uh, um, tendon in my left side of my ankle that was uh, that gave out. It ruptured completely, and uh, <laughs> I lied to them. I didn't play the second half. I just said, oh, I, I tweaked it a little bit, but I'm okay, because I knew I was starting the next night in, in Portland because Kendrick Perkins, the starting center, was out with injury. And, and so I knew I was starting the next night in Portland as well, and I went to Portland, uh, faked it through warm-ups, jumped off the wrong foot, my right foot, through warm-ups, played part of the first quarter, and uh, eventually Doc Rivers noticed something was wrong with me and uh, pulled me out of the game, and they sent me home from Portland. That was the last game of my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that sucks. Uh, Kareem has the skyhook. MJ has the tongue sticking out. Anthony Davis has the unibrow. And Scott Pollard has the hairstyles. Uh, we did power rankings of some of them before the show, and our power rankings go as follows. We got the mustache as our favorite look, followed by the mohawk, the ponytail, and the sideburns. Thoughts and just kind of your overall, your plan to have your personality show through, like, your hairstyles and what that was all about. You know, I didn't even know myself uh, what was I – didn't, I didn't realize. I, I, I knew myself. That, that mm-hmm. came out wrong. I knew myself. What I didn't know about my appearance, I, I dyed my hair the first time when I was in seventh grade. I had a mohawk in seventh grade. It wasn't a true, it was like what you would call a mohawk because there was hair on the side of my head. Uh, but it, it didn't take long uh, in my childhood or, or you know teenage years or whatever to decide I was going to change my appearance fairly often. And what I'm getting at is I didn't know how much attention it would garner. I was just seeing what my, what I looked like with different hairstyles. And then when I could grow facial hair, I started doing different stuff with my facial hair just to see what it looked like. And my college coach, Roy Williams, who's now the head coach of North Carolina, he said, you know, people ask him, because I showed up my sophomore year with blonde hair, which wasn't the first time I'd ever had my hair blonde, but I had blonde hair. And he was like, Scotty. And he's the only person I ever allowed to call me Scotty uh, besides my dad. And uh, he said, Scotty, if any of my other players had shown up with blonde hair, I'd have kicked them off the team. But with you, <laughs> I just figured that's just the way you are. <laughs> and my accent. But he also said this. He said, you know, when somebody asked him about it, one of the reporters, and I heard him say this to the reporter, the reporter said, what do you think about Paul hair? He said, you know, some young men or, or young people do things in order to get attention. Scott does things just because he's Scott, but they also happen to gather attention. And so, really, that's all it is. And I never really could put it that succinctly, especially at that time. I was 19 years old or whatever at the time. Uh, but, but even today, I mean, I've grown my hair back out. i got the founding father look right now because I'm balding on top and i got long hair in the back. Put me on the $100 bill. But, um, you know, it, it's always been that way for me. I, I never really did things to get attention it's just that things that i do get attention i love it speaking of attention um i'm a huge survivor fan so i would be absolutely remiss if i did not ask a survivor question so in 37 seasons of survivor only two nba players have been on the show and you happen to be one of them so i'm going to ask you a couple questions about what your experiences were like but we were wondering uh do the survivor cast members actually sleep outside or are they taken like to a five-star motel with like a free breakfast and wi-fi for accommodations (laughs) Uh, you know, I was actually surprised 
because nobody would tell me, and I even contacted Cliff Robinson, the other NBA player right. you referenced, uh, beforehand, and I was like, hey, man, did they give you a bet or anything? He goes, no, man, it's real. And I was like, full. <laughs> and I got out there, and the surviving part of that show is 100% legit. You absolutely have to make your own shelter, and you absolutely have to sleep on that shelter. You absolutely get no creature comforts unless you earn them in a challenge. What you see on TV as far as the surviving part is absolutely real. I lost 46 pounds in my 28 days in the game. I, that was literally the next question. Is it true you lost 46 pounds during your time on the show? At any point where you like... At, you know, at about 30 pounds loss for me, I'd have probably been like, I'm going to need some beer. I'm going to need some other things like wings. Did you ever think, eh, maybe this isn't for me? No. That, I've done a lot of horrible things to my body being a professional athlete. So, I mean, I'm used to losing weight. I'm used to being starving. I'm used to being thirsty. I'm used to being tired to the point of exhaustion. Uh, I almost got evacuated uh, after the first challenge. Uh, medically evacuated, removed from the game. Um, and it wasn't on camera, so that's why nobody saw it. But um, every 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 challenge, every cast member goes to medical before the challenge and after the challenge. And so before the challenge, it had been a couple days since I had eaten Ooh. anything substantial besides coconut. I'd had a couple coconuts, but, you know, I hadn't had really anything substantial. And the doctor's like, how you doing? I said, well, I'm hungry, but, you know, I've been... I, I'm thirsty too because I hadn't been drinking much water because we couldn't get a fire started, so we weren't boiling the water. And I started drinking some water because I was like, "Well, I'm dehydrated. I've got to drink some water. If I get a virus or if I get a uh, a bug, hopefully something they can give me will kill it. But I'm just going to drink the water out of the cistern without boiling it because I'm dehydrated and I know my body well enough." Well, he says, oh, "I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about that." But you know, good luck. So I got on the challenge, and I overworked myself in the challenge. It was a difficult one. We had to push these boats. We had to paddle, and then we had to push these boats up a, a beach, and then uh, do a puzzle at the end. But the pushing up the boats, I overdid myself trying to make up for my teammates, uh, and we ended up not winning the challenge anyway. Well, then afterwards, everybody goes to medical. Well, with 18 people, it takes a little while. And I was one of the first people to go to medical. And I went in, and the doctor goes, how you doing? I said, well, I overdid it. And I'm extremely dehydrated, and I'm out of water. Uh, what can you do? And he was like, nothing. I can't help you. I can't give you water. But your heart rate's a little elevated. I can tell your lips are gone. You're, you're dehydrated. I can see that. How are, are you okay, though? And I said, well, I'm okay, but how long is it before I can get back to my camp and get some more water? And he said, I can't tell you that. we got to get for everybody else. So I got out of there, and I went back to our tent, and we had to wait in our tent, and we're not allowed to share water with our castmates. We're not allowed to talk to our castmates during this period because there's no cameras on. We're just in the medical waiting room or the waiting tent. Uh, and so about an hour goes by, and I'm starting to get dizzy. And then another 45 minutes or so goes by, and I go, hey, I need to go back to medical, to the producer. And the producer walks me back to medical, and just outside the medical tent, the doctor's tent, I fell down, and I passed out. And then all of a sudden, water bottles appeared out of everywhere. They started pouring water all over me. Uh, they hooked me up to a heart rate monitor. My heart rate was shooting through the roof. It was like 150 deep a minute or some crazy number. Uh, my, my blood pressure was off the chart. And the doctor was, like, leaning over me. I'm laying on the ground in Cambodia, and I'm sitting there going, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and the doctor was like, how are you doing? I said, I told you I was dehydrated. He goes, I know, but how are you doing? I said, well, what's my temperature? And he said, it's 104. I said, well, pour some more water on me and let's see if I can stay in the game. If not, I'll leave, you know? Yeah. And he goes, all right. They pour water on me and my temperature went back down to 101. Uh, my heart rate started to get back down. My blood pressure went down. And he goes, mate, he's from England. He goes, mate, I got to give you about five more minutes and I got to take you out of the game. And so I said, give me a bottle of water. He gave me a bottle of water. I chugged the whole bottle of water. I said, give me another bottle of water. He gave me another bottle of water. I chugged that bottle of water. I said, all right, I'm good. And I went back to camp and I never told any. Nobody knew. Nobody in either any of the three tribes knew because they were all in their holding tent. And I fell down outside of medical. So the only people that knew about it were the doctor and one producer. There was no camera. So they couldn't make a story out of it. But that was after our first challenge. So after that, I learned hey, it's really hot here, and if I'm not going to eat well, I can't overdo it. So I never really went that hard in challenges after that because I didn't want to get kicked out of the game because of medical reasons. Yeah. Uh, and that's a true story, and that's one that nobody can verify unless you're the doctor from that season of Survivor or that producer that happened to be next to me because nobody else saw it. And the rest of it is just me telling that story, which is true. Uh, but I also was like, hey, I don't want to get kicked out of Survivor because of medical reasons. Uh, if I do, I want to get voted out. And I did. I got blindsided by the little guy, Ty, and uh, went out went out the traditional way instead of having medical uh, or a doctor say, hey, you can't play anymore. And there were some other things that happened that season as well. I know I'm going on about the same story because that's what I do. I love it. But um, uh, there were a couple other uh, medical issues with me as well. I had two infections, one in my groin and my right thigh uh, and one on my toe. And one on my finger, and all three of them were getting pretty nasty, and I ended up being on penicillin pretty much the whole time I was out there. Uh, and any one of them, had, had they gone a little bit worse than they were, the doctor told me, he was like, if, if any of these gets worse, you're getting taken out of the show. So I almost got a, uh, evacuated uh, for multiple reasons, but uh, I got lucky, and I was able to tough it out. My, my immune system in for me and, and the penicillin worked for me and, and I was able to get in the game uh, stay in the game and uh, not get voted out or, or not get medically evacuated we set the record that year that season by three medical evacuations and and you know seeing them get evacuated medically is, is horrible, nobody wants that yeah. uh, you, you go on this show because you want to go out and try to you know, manipulate people and, and, and be social or whatever you want to do. Yeah. Uh, and you, so you don't want it to end uh, for, for a reason that has nothing to do with playing the game other than just being out in the wild. And, and so, I was, again, I was, I was lucky that my body responded and, and the penicillin helped, uh, the, the water helped, <laughs> and uh, that, that I was able to stay in the game and, and get voted out as opposed to removed from the game. So almost dying in Cambodia on Survivor. Was it worth it in the end? Uh, the, the greatest thing uh, and the only thing uh, that was wonderful about being on Survivor uh, was that um, I want that to come out the right way. Exposure? I was, I was separated from my wife for almost seven weeks. Yeah. And at the time, we hadn't decided whether we were going to have a baby. This, this is both of our second marriage. She had no kids. I had three already. And we hadn't decided whether we were going to have kids together. And that separation 
of me being on Survivor is why we have our fourth baby, my fourth baby, her her only baby. Yeah. Uh, and he's two and a half years old now, and that is something that I will always appreciate my experience, no matter how much crap people talk about me, uh, about being on Survivor, or the death threats I get because people think I did tie wrong or whatever it was, Jeez. Uh, or because I was a villain on Survivor. I don't care about any of that. It's fun. I was on reality TV. I get it. Most people don't. Most people think reality TV is reality. Uh, but it was fun. Uh, it was cool. Uh, but no matter what, uh, I have a baby boy uh, who's going to grow up to be a, a human, I hope. Uh, and it's the only reason that he exists is because I was on Survivor. So yeah. I'll always have that. So definitely worth it then. You're still living in Indiana, and like you said, you have a family here, Family Man Scott. So asking for some advice here. Let's say it's a Friday night and I have a d- big date planned. <laughs> what places would be my go-to as recommended by Scott Pollard? Dining and drinks. Are you trying to impress a girl, or you just want to have a good time? I'm always trying to impress a girl, <laughs> and I'm always trying to have a good time. So it's like it's a balance of both. Well, I mean, it, there's there's also uh, budgetary constraints there too. I mean, you're talking to an NBA player. Yeah, so. yeah. Let's just throw <laughs> those out. Let's just say I'm balling. Where am I going? All right. Well, first of all, I'm calling up my friend that owns LSG, and I'm telling him to send uh, the, his his uh, Sprinter van, which is a limo. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to come pick me up so that we're having, we have a safe ride uh, and we can uh, have some drinks in the car on, in the limo on the way down because uh, I live up north. So we'd be heading down uh, probably, let's see, I don't really do pre-drinks out in public. Yeah. Uh, you know, my first choice would be out to Bongi's. I don't know if you've ever been out to Bongi's out in uh, Perkinsville, Indiana, which is about, it's not all the way to Muncie. It's, it's north of Lapel. Yeah. Oh. Anderson. It's up there. Uh, Chef Tony Hilstra uh, does an amazing job with the with menu there. If you don't want to go that far because you don't know the girl that well or your date that well, then don't go all the way to Bonnie's because it's about an hour from the north side. Yeah. If you live in the in the city, it's a it's a haul. But you tailgate out there and you have a great time. And, and yeah, I've heard about this place. My favorite restaurant in Indiana. Yeah. Uh, but you know what else? Uh, the the also very impressive to the ladies, uh, I think, um, is Zionsville. It is a very quiet little place. If you want to have a date night, there's a lot of choices of restaurants out there. Noah Grant has been one of my favorite places lately. Salty Cowboy was over there. Mm-hmm. You can't take reser- they don't take reservations. They're owned, I think, by their own by the same people. Uh, but if you want to go downtown, um, obviously St. Elmo's is a good spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're if you're on the northeast side, Sullivan's is one of my favorite places to go. Always great. The thing about Sullivan's, it's my favorite steakhouse in Indiana uh, because <clears throat> I like Elmo's. I love their cocktail. But the thing that I love about Sullivan's uh, is it's so much more accessible and quieter uh, because St. Elmo's just seems to always be so packed and it's hard to get in. It's hard to get down and get to a place where you can sit down unless your name is Peyton Manning. And apparently he has a private dining room there. But, um, you know, uh, Sullivan's is, it seems a little swankier, a little quieter, a little darker. Uh, and I enjoy that. And they have live music there, uh, several nights a week. Uh, so I prefer Sullivan's, uh, to impress if I was trying to impress somebody. Um, and, and so does Mrs. Pollard. We, we both, uh, really uh, prefer Sullivan's over St. Elmo's. But St. Elmo's, you can't go wrong. It's just, you know, if, you're, if, if it was us two picking, we'd pick that one. Love it. Um, also, I, it's oh, where we live. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I, I was going to ask another question about what hairstyle you'd go with, but I think we, we have to go with the last question here. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of plug your own podcast, which is Planet Pollard, which is very entertaining, but um, you are hosting that podcast again, Planet Pollard. So what made you decide to start your own podcast? And uh, if someone, one of our listeners haven't uh, listened to your podcast before, what are some of the things that they should be expecting to hear from your show? Well, uh, the Planet Forward podcast is on uh, the SoundCloud and the Googles and the, the, the uh, iTunes, of course. Um, you know, the, the thing about the Planet Forward podcast is we don't really stick to one theme. Uh, we, I've had uh, an actor, Michael Rappaport, who I, I think he crowned himself number one shit talker uh, ever. Yeah, I've uh, heard of it. Uh, I've had a couple Hall of Famer basketball players on, uh, Ray Allen and Charles Barkley. Uh, I've had suburb dads on my on my podcast just drinking whatever we're drinking and talking shit. Um, so we, we change the subject matter up quite a bit. Uh, we talk about Survivor. I've had Survivor cast members on there as well. Uh, so we, we, we switch around and, and do this and a little bit of that. And it's not very consistent on the timing because my life is, is a little crazy, uh, so I try to pump one out every week, but that hasn't really happened. Uh, I took a long break off this summer, and I'm actually due to do another one this uh, this week. I'm going to try to squeeze one in this week. But uh, yeah, if you're interested in listening to a 30 to 35 minute podcast, I don't go two hours. I don't go an hour. Uh, and, and something that you can, if you got a 15 minute commute, you can listen to half of it on the way to work. And on the way home, you can listen to the other half and. We have a good time. We have a few laughs, and we don't take ourselves too seriously. And I'm talking about myself in the fifth person, I think, at that point. <laughs> I love it. Um, if you ever need, you know, a couple of great guests, you know where to come now. I mean, we, I mean, we would be so happy to do that with you um, because we think you're very interesting. So, uh, but anyway, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Um, again, this is Scott Pollard, 11-year NBA veteran, former center for your Pacers. Uh, contestant on the 32nd season of the TV show Survivor, Shaq Stopper, and also NBA champion. Scott, thank you so much. We look forward to having you on again sometime. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott.